murdered Silas, buried his body in the fields, and dragged Molly from the house, hanging her in the farm's apple orchard. And I am joined today by my friend Trentus Magnus for his first time on, on Is It Yours? And I'm going to adventure, not his last. Welcome aboard, buddy. Thank you very much for having me, number one. And number two, as I was saying just a little while ago, I've listened to a couple of episodes of the show already. I'd started just before your invitation came through. This show is phenomenal. I am just eating this up with a spoon every day, back and forth, coming to work. And so uh, you've got a lot to be proud of. Thanks, Good job. Thanks a lot. This, you know, like all podcasts, like all podcasts, I think pretty much for everybody, it's a labor of love, or there's no point in doing it at all. You know, I, I've 
I, I right. grown up as a huge comic book music and movie fan. So between this, Back to the Bins, and uh, the occasional long play, I'm pretty much I've got everything under control now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it is kind of funny that podcasting. One of the things that I kind of like about it is that it allows you to kind of indulge all of your different fandoms and it can go as deep as you want it to go. Like it, you know, you've got kind of varied interests and I've got kind of varied interests and there's room for everything. That's what I love about it. It's one of the things about your show too, is that you've, you've allowed yourself for the various interests because your show doesn't have a specific topic, which is kind of cool. And uh, I'll, I'll return your compliment that every time I listen to it, I, I really enjoy it. And usually most points you make, I agree with. And when I don't agree with them, I can't say that your logic is is uh, faulty. It's just, you know, sometimes we don't agree on a couple of things. But you always at least present a, a viable argument for your point of view, which I appreciate. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You know, I think that's probably the nicest way that anybody has ever told me, Magnus, you have ADD. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's an enjoyable show. And, and I've, I've fallen into the trap uh, that I try to avoid of what's happening is I'll end up with like five episodes of your show in the queue on my iPod and I'll find myself listening yep. to three or four of them in one day as opposed to listening to them as they come out which is actually my preference but for whatever reason I just seem to be developing uh, a habit where I end up with multiple episodes of shows and have to <laughs> just attack them all at once thankfully I have a job where well, at my desk I can, have, uh, I can have podcasts playing while I'm working Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a good position to be in right there. <laughs> so you are somewhat unique, if you didn't know that already, in that when I asked <laughs> you what you were interested in putting on this show, or which what you were interested in covering on the show, uh, you didn't just automatically say, this is one of my favorite movies of all time and I'd like to discuss it. In fact, I would venture that while I think you like this movie, that it's probably not on your list of favorite of all time. Very perceptive. Very perceptive. <laughs> and it's a movie I had not uh, seen until you suggested it and I went out and I got it from the library and I watched it and I'm curious uh, for anybody who doesn't already know we're doing Behind the Mask The Rise of Leslie Vernon and my first question to you is why'd you pick this one? Uh, well basically what it what it came down to was I guess sort of my origin story with it and what happened was I'd gotten sick and it was just a, a little minor bug it really wasn't all that big a deal but a friend of mine, or I guess I should say former friend of mine, um, he was going through a sort of more saintly type of phase in his character development. And so he said, well, to hell with it, I'm going to come to your place. I'm dropping off some movies. That way, whenever you're downing NyQuil, you'll have something to watch. So they just sat, all these different movies and stuff, they just sat on my little end table uh, downstairs in, my, uh, in the townhouse that I had at the time. And I want to say it was probably about a month later, this girl space friend of mine uh, came over and, you know, we're hanging out. And I started this movie just before she came over. And so it, it was sort of playing in the background as she and I were talking about whatever it was that we were talking about. And it's one of those kind of strange experiences in life when you kind of have a movie on in the background, but you're not really paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. And then it starts getting kind of interesting. And so you're not talking as much to each other anymore. And then after a while, you're just kind of engrossed in the movie. And by virtue of the fact that this happened to both of us, what I took from this is that 
this is I shouldn't say great, but this is a very interesting movie. It's definitely got a lot of points going for it as far as originality is concerned. Um, there's a little bit of a gimmick to it, and I guess we can get more into that in you know whenever you want. But what I I guess what I you know what I took from this is that yes, this is a, a slasher movie, but it's it it it, it at once acknowledges the a lot of the tropes and the conventions of slasher movies while at the same time like in a weird kind of way repudiating mm-hmm. them while still fulfilling them and it's it's one of the few movies i know of that does that so that was really the thing that kind of the the fact that it had just this kind of grab this sort of grab you type of effect along with the fact that this is something other than a traditional conventional type of horror movie made it i thought possibly fertile ground for an episode of your show so i guess we'll yeah, find no, I, out i agree with you your thought process there and often when you talk about these movies that are very meta or or you know movies comic books whatever whatever art form you, you're speaking of uh, sometimes they strike me as being so you know hey look at me i'm so clever uh, that they turn mm-hmm. me off. In this instance, I right. can't say that happened at all. I, I did find the meta level of this uh, very intriguing and very interesting, and that was to me somewhat riveting. Uh, and we'll, we'll go. I'm going to give a synopsis of the plot in a moment, but the plot kind of goes from that meta look at horror slash slasher movies, and eventually it kind of turns into a slasher movie. And that's kind of the point where it lost me a little bit. I wish it had kind of mm-hmm. stayed on the the first track through the whole thing. And I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. agree with that, and if you don't, I, I'm definitely going to be curious to hear your opinions on it. But for the moment, I'll, let me just give the plot to this, which is provided to us by Wikipedia. Sure. The film is shot as a documentary set in a world where the killers depicted in famous slasher films are real. A female journalist named Taylor Gentry and her two cameramen, Doug and Todd, document the preparations of Leslie Vernon as he prepares to join the ranks of other slasher villains. Leslie takes his identity from an urban legend about a boy who killed his family and was cast into a river by angry townsfolk. He initially claims to be the vengeful spirit of the slain boy, but soon admits that he's an ordinary man named Leslie Mancuso who must rely on conventional tactics rather than supernatural powers. Taylor and her crew film Leslie's meticulous preparations to slaughter a number of teenagers in an abandoned house and then be confronted by a virginal survivor girl, Kelly. Taylor and her crew come to share Leslie's enthusiasm for his project, but their consequences catch up with them on the night of the murders. They beg Leslie to call off his killing spree, but Leslie is adamant, believing that his survivor girl will define herself by facing him. Taylor and her crew abandon their documentary, and at this point the film shifts from a documentary style to a traditional horror film presentation. Taylor attempts to warn and rally the remaining teens together to fight Leslie, but Leslie's preparations repeatedly give him the upper hand. The grouper looks to Kelly for leadership, but she unexpectedly dies, which is a great moment. <laughs> yes, it Taylor is. Taylor <laughs> quickly realizes that, as a virgin herself, she was Leslie's true survivor girl all along. Leslie continues picking off the group one by one until only Taylor remains. She faces Leslie and defeats him in the exact manner he had laid out for her, then burns down the shed in which he was defeated. She then runs into Doug and Doc Halloran, who survived their encounters with Leslie. However, Leslie's preparations included learning to feign death and slathering himself with flame-retardant gel. Over the final credits, security camera footage reveals Leslie's charred body sitting up on an autopsy table, still alive, accompanied by the song Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. And that's our plot. Again, I mean, the the plot synopsis kind of lays it out as far as the breakdown of the 
looking at the slasher films and showing some of the tropes and how they kind of turn it into a comedy there and then eventually it turns into a slasher film i kind of feel it would be better off or it would have been a more effective movie if they had just gone into it wholeheartedly and not kind of chickened out a little bit at the end because that's the way it felt to me by going the slasher route i basically agree with that i mean I guess from a from a structural point of view, you're kind of left with a challenge of the fact that this team, they're out there making this documentary. And so once they decide that they're going to turn on Leslie, why then would they possibly continue filming this stuff? And, you know, I mean, it, from a realistic standpoint, it really doesn't add up. But considering the fact that this movie incorporates as like real world in universe events, things like Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers and all the rest all of a sudden somebody continuing to shoot a documentary doesn't really seem all that unlikely now does it you know so yeah i don't know you know i mean that somebody had to make the decision yeah we're gonna you know we're gonna make the switch here and i don't really agree with it i thought it actually worked really well you know uh, as a sort of a faux documentary because this whole thing is sort of like scream meets the office and so just to kind of stick with that you know i mean this is there's that brief little interlude in like the middle of the movie that sequence in the library where they they break away from a dot from the documentary format but for the most part i mean that was the format they chose and i think it worked really well in the movie and why they decided to abandon it especially since they resume it at the end of you know over the uh, end of credits because that's a that's supposed to be a you know cctv that we're watching of this autopsy that's right. about to happen and it's like there's just that one brief little window where it's like a real movie now and i gotta tell you just the the cinematography i thought was kind of weak the the musical score i just the film score i thought in that sequence was just kind of weak and it it's basically everything that made this movie awesome up to that point they just basically cut away and here, here you are you know so i don't yeah, get I it i thought it could have worked as the horror movie version of you know the the, the movies like uh what's it best in show you, you know the ones i'm talking about the the faux uh, documentaries that, that yeah. they have out there and, yeah. and i thought this would have worked well just going the whole way and to to a great extent although the it's presented as a documentary but then they're showing footage that would not have made it into the documentary so it's it's it, and it's not a found footage movie no. so it, it's no. I guess you know really what it comes down to it is it's a it's a movie of the making of the documentary, whereas I would have kind of liked to have seen it just purely put together as a documentary, and I think yeah. it would have been fascinating viewing. And to me, I'm going to just jump right to it. The MVP of this movie, as far as I was concerned, was Scott Wilson, who yes. uh, people will know from The Walking Dead, where he played Herschel, and uh, I just thought he was hilarious in this movie. He he's he's pretty <laughs> much Leslie's mentor in the slasher business and just just here you know he he was passionate about it like the way he presents his character and yet he still mm -hmm. talks about it as if it's just so everyday life for him like when he's talking about the other slashers you know the famous historical slashers he calls them uh, was it mike fred and jay yeah you know th <laughs> things like that that just you know really just cracked me up and like I said, to me, he was the MVP of the movie. Whenever he was on, on the screen, it just caught my eye and I, I would just be riveted to it. And usually with a smile on my face because he was doing something amusing in the way he did it. And he never came out of character. He never played it for laughs. You know, and it's kind of funny that like that you went that way with it, because I thought at least the, the standout character for me 
or at least the standout, I guess, performer was actually Angela Goethals. And I'm going to, I'm just going to freely admit this. She and I are give or take a couple of months. We're pretty much the same age. And the first time that I ever saw her in anything, it was in this really crappy ABC TV show called Phenom. And I thought, okay, so she's really cute. Check. She's blonde check and she plays tennis just like i was starting to do at that time check 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 and i thought this show has got to be the greatest thing ever and it (laughs) wasn't but the thing is it's just she's a really good she does a really good straight and she also plays it straight exactly the way i was just saying about scott wilson that she never she never kind of seems to be hamming it up no and that's an important thing for her to do because there are times when leslie just says the weirdest most offbeat things there's this one moment where uh he's playing with his turtles and then he just looks at her and says just deadpan serious yeah i try to only keep pets that i can eat and she just like does a double take with that and then she like looks around like you guys heard that right like i'm not dreaming here and there there's a way that you can do that where it's almost like you don't react on one extreme but then on the other extreme it's like you way overreact like the office would do this sometimes where somebody would say something that is just so freaking bizarre that yeah you know you're gonna have a reaction if you ever heard you know, heard somebody say something just that insane before you're going to have a reaction to it. It's not going to be like, you know, and she finds that, that kind of that sweet spot where, yeah, she's definitely creeped out by a lot of the stuff that she sees, a lot of the stuff that she hears. She just doesn't overplay right. it. And yeah, I like no, that. She, she, and plus she's cute I, I would well. say for the most part, the acting in the movie was all, especially considering most of the actors and actresses are people who I'm not that familiar with. This isn't, you know, a, a an all-star cast of, of names, but I think they all turned in pretty pretty decent performances, all things considered. Uh, you know, again, I could quibble with some. I, I wouldn't even quibble with the script so much as the choice that we've discussed that they that they took, you know, mm-hmm. the turn they took because it took what I thought was a very clever premise that was pretty well executed, and then just turned it into the run-of-the-mill slasher movie. So that right. that was where it lost and up to, something and, for and, me. And, yeah, and the thing about it was this was such sort of a, I guess, a love letter in its own way. This was kind of a love letter to other slasher f- and just general horror movies because you had Robert England playing uh, Doc Halloran. So there's Freddy Krueger right there. There was uh, Zelda Rubenstein as the right, librarian. From, uh, poltergeist. And, right. And then finally, Autopsy Guy was played by Kane Hodder, which is to say Jason Voorhees and like two or three or four of the movies and so it's not exactly like an all-star studded cast or anything like that but at the same time this this movie does have some pretty solid i think horror movie pedigrees to it and to me it would be it it, as much as i enjoy scream as a movie it would be i guess sort of like scream at the last at the last possible moment they sort of chicken out and then they take they stop i guess being meta i suppose with you know, all of these horror movie analogies and whatnot that they're working with, and they just go for the schlock. And that, in a sense, is what this movie sort of does, like you were saying. But to me, I this is one of those movies that, you know, it, it's kind of funny. At the time that I suggested that we talk about this, basically where my head was at was, oh, yeah, I remember that. That movie was a lot of fun, and, you know, it, it had this stuff in it, and, you know, then then this happens, and it, a great time is had by all. I hadn't seen this thing in years, and so sitting down to rewatch it now, <clears throat> sometimes you can, you can, it's almost like you're seeing something again for the first time, and you can kind of start seeing, I guess, some of the cracks and some of the weaknesses with it, 
And that definitely came through, in, in, at least in this particular case. It didn't hold up as well as I was expecting it to. And I guess in the end, I would, I'm would, i tempted to call this I, sort of a like a noble failure. You know, its heart is in the right place. But something is like maybe the direction or so, something about this, it needed a little bit more time in the oven. Like, what do you I, think? I think when you say a failure, that's probably in my mind probably being slightly over overcritical because mm -hmm. i don't think it's a failure because it was entertaining i think it's a failure in that it had a chance to really transcend entertaining and become something that would really be you know like a top-notch film and it didn't quite reach that mm -hmm. level although it had the potential to so in that respect i could kind of use the word failure but as far as was it entertaining or not I don't think it was a failure at all. I thought it was pretty entertaining. Even even after it switched to the uh, to the slasher mode, mm -hmm. it, it got the biggest laugh out of me in that, or the biggest laughs out of me because there were a couple of scenes. Uh, as as it mentioned in the synopsis for anybody listening, if you haven't seen this, uh, Leslie has latched onto this girl Kelly as being a local virgin who is mm -hmm. ultimately in horror movie fashion going to be the one who has to face off against him. Uh, after he's killed everybody else. So when they go to stop Leslie's rampage, or when they go in to try and rally the teens to stop it, uh, they burst in on Kelly, and she's riding a guy like a bucking bronco. <laughs> and it yeah. just cracked me up laughing, because this is supposed to be the virginal girl. And and then ultimately... Not a virgin. <laughs> yeah, she's not even close to a virgin. And she's like, when they say it to her, she's like, what? <laughs> you know, and, and then uh, ultimately, you know, they start talking. And she's like, well, forgive me for being sexually active. I just, I found it very amusing <laughs> the way they went with that. So even after they did go to the slasher mode, there still was some, some really cool moments in there, I thought. And, and that actually leads into a... a, a... Uh, a, a question I've got for you. I'm going to put you on the sure. spot here <clears throat> just a little bit. It's a little bit of a twist, you know, that moment that you were talking about. You know, we all kind of had, I can't say too high expectations because let's just keep that, I guess, in perspective. But the movie kind of laid out a scenario of how all of this was going to play out. And that was the first time that we saw that um, it's like a monkey wrench had gotten thrown into the works. And so obviously the twist, you know, the payoff for all of that is Kelly is just a red herring. The real target is, was, and had always been Taylor. Did you predict that at the moment that you saw uh, uh, Kelly doing her thing? Or, or, did, or was it like a revelation to you when the moment finally happens and, you know, the penny drops for Taylor? I, like, how did that play I'd, out? I'd love to... Uh present myself as this so clever guy that I had it figured out all, all the way through, uh, but I didn't. Uh, when, when, when it turned out that she wasn't a virgin, it surprised me. And it didn't even occur to me to think a step further into the trope and say, well, then who is going to be the virgin? That, that never came into my mind. But, you know, ultimately, mm. they still had to stick with the formula. There had to be a virgin to face off against him. And I like that aspect of it, <laughs> that they had to have one there. Uh, but, it, no, it, it, it did not – it was not something that I saw coming. Did you? It was just a couple of seconds. I, I can't tell you, like, the exact moment that it happened. It was a few seconds – you know, after they're getting everything worked out with Kelly, you know, and she finally has her clothes back on. And guys, by the way, I just want to just to kind of put a pen in this conversation I'm having with Paul. If you're of basically, if you just don't want to see naked women, 
you don't need to worry about that at least too much. There is kind of a glory shot of somebody's assets at one point in the movie, but this this scene that I'm talking that Paul and I are talking our way through here, there's actually believe it or not, I mean you know what they're doing and the lights are on and everything, but somehow they they shoot it in such a way that you don't really see nakedness. So if that's something that you're determined to avoid, well, at least in that scene, you're okay. Or if it's something you're desperate to see, this is probably not the movie for you. Right, and that's going to be the other thing. You know, I don't know why you're watching this kind of movie, but hey, hey, whatever floats your boat, pal. (laughs) So, But, you know, after Kelly got her clothes back on and they're basically saying, well, you know, what is going on? Who are you? Why are you here? You know, all that stuff. That's, it was during that scene that I realized well, somebody's going to have to be the virgin here. There's only one other woman in this entire sequence. And so I'm going to go ahead and lay odds that Taylor was somehow the the real target all along. And so I ended up being proved right about that. So, yay, Magnus, one, universe, well, zero. Now, as so. written and as as you watch it, do you get the perspective that Taylor was the virgin and Leslie knew that Taylor was the virgin and he was her target or he misdirected his target, but just nature has a way of course correcting itself and there had to be a virgin there. No, I, what I took from it and I could be wrong, but what I took from it was uh, basically Leslie was playing 4D chess and what he wanted to do was, I guess, satisfy the terms of what a slasher is supposed to be but do it in a way that breaks the formula. You know, he looks up to all of these other famous slashers and stuff, and, you know, he wants to be that, but he wants to be that while sort of reinventing the wheel. That's what I took from it. Okay. You know, it's... I do like when you have to figure it out a little bit for yourself and put your own take on it. I don't like when they do that in movies or in television shows to too great of an extent. Uh, for example, I did not like, I did not care for the end of The Sopranos when it went dark, and they said, "Well, whether or not he was killed at the end is up to you." No, I, you know what? If he's killed at the end, let me know he's killed at the end. But something like this, where yeah. you, you're going into his, you know, mental machinations and, you know, what what was he thinking and how was he planning it? I don't mind leaving that up to the viewer to decide. Well, the only reason I want to believe that, just to be, just so you and I can just be square with one another, like the reason I want to believe that is because it basically leaves you with a scenario where, if the twist wasn't anticipated by Leslie, then you're kind of left with the situation where things played out exactly the way that Leslie predicted they would. Just change one person's name, and you know, and if you're, if you're gonna make you know elaborate plans and all of these other sorts of things that Leslie does. And then it's shown to us before the event actually happens. It's kind of boring to then just turn around and watch things unfold exactly the way that they were planned. And, you know, that's I'm basically just trying to give everybody involved a little bit of credit here. That's the only reason. Right. I'm no, saying I, that. I get that. And that's I, I think that's a perfectly valid way to look at the movie. But I also look at the other side of the coin. And I think there could be some cleverness to that, too, to say he made a mistake, but nature corrected itself there has to be a virgin so even though he made a mistake it just turns out there's one there you know what i mean like that that yeah. it's the trope it has to be end of story <laughs> and i don't mind that as, as as a way of looking at it as well i think your way is probably more consistent with the way the uh, movie writers had in mind but i kind of mm-hmm. like the idea of the other way too i, I, I don't know i just think it's you know, again, it, it, it serves that meta purpose that I kind of like in this. 
Yeah, and that actually kind of leads into a, a question that I had for you. I mean, I think Survivor Girl had been in the horror movie lexicon, you know, part of just slasher lingo for a long time there. But this movie introduced, you know, there there were certain turns of phrase and there were, you know, other things that at least <clears throat> they were foreign to me. I mean, I'm not exactly a, a total outsider when it comes to slasher movies, but I'm certainly not an authority on them either. And so Survivor Girl, I'd heard that before, but... They call, and I and I say they, like basically uh, Leslie and Eugene, and of course I'm, I'm blanking on Eugene's wife's name, but the three of them, they basically call Dr. Halloran Leslie's Ahab. And I guess this is sort of the way, and of course now I'm blanking on the guy's name, Dr. Loomis, yes. is that it, yes. from Halloween? Uh, Donald Pleasant. Right. And that's, he's that type of figure. You know, he's the guy that's out on superficially what at least what we're supposed to believe is that he's on a crusade uh, to uh, save the town from from Leslie and his reign of terror you know the ultimate evil you know and all that and and even that i mean just first off the concept of that just by itself you know the idea of calling that ahab i just freaking love that that is great not, not, only, not only that but, but the way that, they present they kind of, it too where where when he comes walking into the room and he says, I have my Ahab, and they're like so happy for him. Yeah, like this is an achievement yeah. or something. It's just like, this is really sick. But like, how did you like that stuff? You know, like the idea of putting like a little label on everything, you know, and they call, this isn't even, you know, deviant criminal behavior anymore. They just call it the industry. Like, what, like, how, like how did you yeah, like no, that I, stuff? I thought that was some of the most clever stuff in the movie, to be honest with you. The whole Ahab thing I found to be very amusing. And not only that, but, you know, even the, the premise where they had to slowly build up to this and scare Kelly. You know, first you had to do something at her job where she came outside and she got frightened. And he had this whole elaborate thing where she'd kind of see him, but she wouldn't. Then then you had to follow it up by killing somebody who's, you know, some matronly person close to her, which is where Zelda Rubinstein comes in. But then that's the scene where they introduce uh, Doc Halloran as his Ahab. And I, I thought it was all put together very, very well. So I, I found it to be very clever. And, and it does play on the tropes that you've seen in these movies so many times, if you've seen enough slasher movies. And I'm not a, a slasher connoisseur either, but I've seen enough of them over the years that I can kind of see, oh, yeah, that's that's that stereotype, and that's that stereotype. And, and they, they play on it, and they, they have fun with it. And that's where I think the movie really shines. Agreed. And something that I at least kind of appreciated about it is... Basically, you've got Leslie as kind of, I guess, like the Batman of slashers, because he actually says at one point in the movie, you know, he says that basically he's outnumbered, he's outmuscled, he's out everything. And so without basically rigging everything up in, in a way that benefits him, I mean, these he's going to get overwhelmed, you know? And, you know, when I started thinking about that, you know, what I realized is every time I watched a slasher movie, what I always assumed is that Michael Myers or Jason or any of these other guys, they're basically picking people off seemingly at random. This is the guy that they could get their hands on. And so this guy, it's lights out for him, you know? And what this movie suggests, possibly not just of Leslie, but certainly of Leslie, is that none of this is happening by by happenstance. You know, whenever he kills those kids in the basement, he had a pretty good idea of who was going to be going down there. And so he basically rigged the game in such a way that he was going to be able to take advantage of uh, of the situation and take them out, basically. And I kind of like the idea of 
I want to be careful how I say this because it's not like I advocate serial <laughs> killers or anything. But I kind of like the idea of Leslie. He's not operating at random. You know, the lights go out in, in the house whenever he pushes the button on the remote control. Someone's going to go down to the basement to check the circuit breaker. So he's going to be down there to, to take that person out. And every step of the way, he's controlling and containing the panic that's ensuing. And because of the fact that we saw the prep, we know what went into this in terms of, you know, this none of, literally nothing is being left uh, to chance here. It, it gave Leslie and his methods and his success at killing all of these people. It actually gave him a lot of credibility. You know, he'd rigged everything in such a way that, yeah, I can totally buy that, you know, a big group of people that aren't expecting to be attacked by a knife or, I guess, scythe-wielding maniac. Yeah, it probably would be that easy to take them all out if you if you structure things in such a way. So I don't know like how you reacted to that, but I at least thought, again, this is just more – It this is one of those movies where I'm actually starting to think that you know the script is actually better than the finished product. Well, when it comes to the, what you're talking about there, and I agree with you from a slightly more superficial level – that it shows how he had prepped for every possible contingency and it shows how a guy without any type of supernatural abilities or supernatural powers can do something like this where he's so way outnumbered by taking into account all the different uh, possibilities or, or expectations. But when you start deconstructing it a step further, you see that every one of his plans is rooted in the fact that the kids are going to act in the stereotypical way. You know, yes. I'm going to turn off the lights. <laughs> the jock is going to go downstairs, but he's going to go downstairs with his girlfriend. Then he's going to try and, you know, comfort her, and they're going to start making out. And that's when I'm going to kill him. Like, he knows that they're going to do exactly those things. There's nothing, there's no, <laughs> no, no point in his plan where he says, well, what if they don't start making out there? You know what I mean? Because he just knows they're going right. to do that because in every horror movie, that's what they do. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Well, it's just that's one of the like I say, one of the more. I, and again, I'm trying I'm trying like hell to, to not say realistic because there is nothing about this movie that bears any kind of similarity to something that you might someday mistake for reality. But it's like at the same time, there's still a, a weird kind of verisimilitude to it. And I think that, you know what, a good part of that is actually down to the documentary presentation of at least like what, like 75, 80 percent of of the narrative here that by the time it goes full horror movie, maybe that, you know what, now that I think about it, the fact that it goes full horror movie, but it has that documentary sort of a, uh, as a foundation, it actually does give it hell with it. Credibility. That's really the best word I and can I, and think I of. And I think, you know, as, as we're talking this through, I, I think I agree with that point as well, that it does to some extent justify it not staying in the documentary field at the end because we've gone through all the preparation stages and we've seen how he's gotten it ready and now we need to see the plans executed and how he's going to execute them so there is kind of a need to take the film in that direction i wonder if it couldn't have been done in a you know in a format where where it stayed with the documentary and and stayed with the deconstruction level because again that that kind of got abandoned there and that was the disappointment to me that that did get abandoned. But I do think you do need to see those plans come to fruition. Because otherwise you, you feel kind of like, you know, okay, you brought me up to the edge and then you ended. Well, the one of the things that I kind of, I guess 
I'm trying to find a way to not say that I really enjoyed. I'm trying to find a different way of saying basically the same thing. But one of the things that I like is that, you know, beyond his tactics, beyond his objectives, you know, basically this is a guy that on some level or another wants to die doing what he loves. This is a guy that has analyzed the minutia of the symbolism of this conflict that he's willingly thrust himself into. The weapons that Taylor has access to are very phallic. The uh, location for their final battle, he said it draws a lot upon Yonic imagery. And you guys can Google that if you want to know what that is. And, you know, I guess I like the I, I, I appreciated and enjoyed that he's in a weird kind of way. It's like he's commenting on the movie for us but not really. And it kind of feeds into that whole meta thing that you've been talking about actually a whole lot more really than I have, but it actually does kind of lead into one of the weak points of the movie. in that this is a guy that basically got his head crushed in that apple crushing thingy. Mm -hmm. And then he got lit up. Now I would think, you know, whether he's got flame retardant goo on him or not, one of the, uh, one of those or the other is going to do him in. And yet, over the end credits, we see that he's alive and well. He rises up from the autopsy table, whereas where I assume he's going to take Jason out of action. Do you buy the fact that somebody could survive the amount of trauma that this guy went through? Or is that just part of the I game? I think that's part of the game because I think that's, again, go, just going to the horror movie tropes. You know, you, no matter how many times you kill Michael Myers, he sits up eventually. Same thing with Jason. Freddy's a little different, but the two of them are pretty much carbon copies as far as how they deal with, uh, you know, with, with the death blow. No matter what happens, eventually they sit up and the horror music kicks in. And, you know, then you know, more often than not, it's like we saw it in that scene where the, the person who's in the room with them is oblivious to the fact that they're sitting up and alive. So, it, right. you know, again, it's playing on that horror movie trope. And this is over the end credits. So... I, I think it's you know it's played for the comedy aspect of it to some extent, and while it, this is all going on, we're hearing "Psycho Killer" by the Talking Heads, which, which, which <laughs> yes. I, I kind of like that. Nice and, touch. Uh, but yeah. but it does lead me to the next question for you because I've only had a chance to watch this the one time. You know, you I hadn't seen it before. You suggested it. I went out and got it, and I watched it two nights ago because that's when I had the time to watch it. I didn't really take note at any point in the movie of the score. It didn't jump out at me at any point. It didn't seem to have that horror movie, uh, you know, that classic, you know, scary type music like you'd have in Halloween or in, in Friday the 13th mm -hmm. or The Exorcist or any of those movies where, you know, you have that kind of iconic scary music. Uh, was there something, anything to the score here that jumped out at you because maybe you've had a little bit more chance to listen to it? Not really. I mean, the only time I really paid a lot of attention to it was I was watching. I watched this movie a couple of nights ago. I just made some popcorn and basically just tried to make a little bit of an evening of it. And guys, it needs to be said that this is a a fairly low budget movie. I mean, this was I don't even think this got like a major release or anything like that. And so the film score, I think, is pretty consistent with that. But one of the things that stood out to me is that during those moments when it's a real movie, because the documentary section is unscored. The only part of the movie that has music to it at all is the film aspect of it. And it's got, I have to assume this is done intentionally. It has this almost over the top kind of sort of melodic high pitched type of uh, a string section going for it. And 
that may seem like it's a criticism, but considering the fact that this is supposed to be satire as much as anything, it actually plays to the strengths of what this movie wants to be. So it's not especially, to answer your question, it's not especially memorable or anything like that. Like everybody is going to remember the Halloween score. Like a hundred years from now, people are still going to be looking back at the Halloween score and thinking, man, uh, Carpenter was awesome, you know? And I don't think anyone's going to say that about this movie because the score isn't really meant to call attention to itself. It's meant to be a little bit satirical while at the same time still horror movie type fare. So maybe that's the best way of, of looking at it. I don't know. But but I guess to give you a short answer, no, nothing about it really stood okay, out to me. So we had a similar experience as far as that goes. Uh, it's worth mentioning right. this movie was directed, written, and produced by Scott Glasserman. I'm not f mm -hmm. familiar with his work otherwise. I don't know if he's done anything else uh, to speak of. He had a co-writer, Dave David Stive, I guess it's pronounced. Uh, I guess. And there, I mean, there's a music credit on it. There's cinematography. They do not give the budget anywhere that I've seen. And I would tend no. to agree with you that it's a low budget. The Probably the highest portion of the budget was paying Robert Englund. I would think. Yeah, yeah probably. Um, <laughs> but the box office, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, was 69136000 Unless I'm mistaken, and the, it's actually $69,136, which I'm hoping it's not that. That's... <laughs> Yeah, that's actually what I thought it was. I mean, I because it's it's only got the five digits on there, and so what I assumed that meant is, uh, yeah, maybe sixty nine thousand. I don't know. And you know, just think about that for a minute. How sad is that? You know, I mean, you have to figure that everybody involved with the movie was hoping for something more than that, but I don't know. That's that's yeah, pretty the more, sad. The more I look at it, the more I think, I think that's you know, thinking sixty nine million was a huge mistake. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, it didn't get a wide release. The, the, it says, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, the widest release was 72 theaters. It was released for 21 right. days, and that was it. So 69,000 actually probably sounds right. Well, and just to kind of, you know, put that in perspective, you know, like what is, uh, you know, what, what is 72 theaters and, you know, what does that look like and everything? Well, the way that it is right now... <clears throat> And I mean, literally, at the time that uh, Paul and I are recording all of this, uh, the the Ghostbusters remake is currently playing in 117 theaters nationwide. And over this past weekend, it took in $70,514. And so that is a major handicap uh, to get past. And so unless your movie is in... I don't know, probably like a thousand or fifteen hundred something uh, movie theaters. Your long-term prospects are going to be pretty bleak, and so, you know, this is one of those things where we all need to kind of keep our expectations in check just a little bit. Yeah, and we we had a conversation recently. I was talking with the uh, Jack and Eddie brothers, and we were talking oh, yeah. about cool. uh, expectations when you're making a movie. And I suggested that, with very very few exceptions. When people are making a movie, even when they have a very modest budget, uh, I think they always have dreams of grandeur. I think they think they're going to overcome the modest budget and put together a movie that somehow is going to catch on and become, you know, the next big thing. You know, the the, the next Blair right. Witch Project uh, type yeah. thing. Yeah. So I doubt that anybody making this thought, okay, you know, if we make $69,000, it'll be good. I assume 
that in home video release this has recouped more of its uh, its budget? Well, I sure to God hope so. Because <laughs> I mean, I've heard of this movie, and a movie that only made sixty nine thousand. You would think, you know, I wouldn't have heard of it before, and it wouldn't be available to me in the library because that would be a, at best, a modest art house type movie, and you wouldn't think, you know, you'd find that in a wide release in home video to speak of. So it's out there and it's available. And I got to say, overall, if you have an interest in horror movies or slasher movies, I think this is a good movie to watch. I would I would definitely recommend it from that perspective. One of the things that I like about it is actually one of many things that I like about it is that a lot of horror movies, especially these days, they way over rely on kind of cheap, schlocky things like the jump mm-hmm. scare. And to me, a jump scare is what you call it when an innocent character startles another innocent character. That's a jump scare. It's just really, it's just cheap. It doesn't do anything. I mean, if it's at least the villain of the piece that's driving the scare, at least, you know, he's living up to his narrative potential. But a jump scare is just whenever you screw around with the audience. And I'm sorry, that is... I don't respect a filmmaker that uh, that relies on that sort of thing. And this movie does not have jump scares. You know, I mean, it really doesn't have a whole lot of really music to it at all. But if you hear the music, what that means is that Leslie is truly nearby. And I don't see. I don't want to go so far as to compare this to Jaws, where the music in Jaws is never a red herring. If you hear that that two note theme, that driving two note theme. In Jaws, that means the shark is there. There's and, and Spielberg knew not to mess around with people about that. And in a weird kind of way, that's true here. If you hear the music going, whatever music schlocky stuff they have playing in the background, it's not for nothing, you know. And that much I can compliment it about. So, you know, in general, I do recommend this movie. Now, to me, like the like the premise of this podcast, you know, is it Jaws? No, <laughs> no, this is not Jaws. This is, if it's anything, like the best I'd be willing to say about it is that it might scrape Jaws 2 territory. But to me, slasher movies don't have to be great. All they need to be is good. And this is both good and different. It it breaks down a lot of, I guess, uh, tropes and expectations that a lot of people have about slasher movies. And it kind of, not to the same degree that Scream did, but it does at least attempt to pull slasher movies somewhat out of uh, out of the rut that they've been in. And if for no other reason, that to me is just cause for seeing this movie, and I do recommend checking it out. As I say, just keep Pulse uh, and my uh, caveats in mind. You know, this is not exactly high art, but I, you know, you'll get your money's worth. Put yeah, it that I, way. I was going to get to actually our Jaws ratings in a little while, but. You, you you got me on that so let's let's I'll give you mine as well because I pretty much agree with you I was ranking it as Jaws 3 and if you are a fan of horror slasher movies then it might move up to Jaws 2 for you but either way even if you're not it's probably you know something you could sit through and get some enjoyment out of just the same that said I, I wanted to touch on one of the, one of the points you made uh, you know you talked about the jump scare and I always had it defined a little bit differently than you did basically your your jump scare is where they give you a red herring scare uh, mm-hmm. my definition of red of a jump scare was more uh, the way Alfred Hitchcock described it and he he talked about uh, if you had a bomb in a room and he said you could have a scene where people are sitting in a room and the bomb goes off and you're going to scare everybody in the room for a couple of seconds until they settle down after the bomb 
kind of settles. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the jump scare. You know, a loud explosion that just kind of makes you jump out of your seat for a moment. As opposed to suspense, which is what Hitchcock was more uh, aiming for in his movies. So in his definition of this, instead of having a bomb just go off in the room, he'd have the people in the room, then he would show you the bomb with the clock timer ticking down, then he'd cut back to the people, then he'd cut back to the timer again, and he'd have that suspense building and building and building until you finally got the expect, uh, the explosion. And when you got the explosion, it wasn't going to startle you because you knew it was coming. But instead of having a couple of seconds where you jumped when the explosion went off, you had maybe two or three minutes where you were waiting for that explosion, where you're sitting on the edge of your seat biting your fingernails. So that, right. that's kind of the way I, and, I define a jump scare. And that is, honestly, that is the probably the proper definition. It's just that, to me, I mean, you can do a jump scare. Like, if you have a jump scare where, like, Michael Myers darts out of the closet and he starts choking somebody, yeah, that's a jump scare, but at least it's one that is merited because ultimately what the audience is afraid of in any Halloween movie is Michael Myers. And so when you show Michael Myers being Michael Myers, even when it catches the audience off guard, I guess, yeah, technically that's a jump scare, but it's not that kind of cheap uh, jump scare where, you know, random character A accidentally startles random character B. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know exactly the type of when, trope that you're talking about. It's not, you know, it's just that we, we use a different term to describe it, I guess. That's all. Yeah, and yours is actually the, the the correct one. It's just that it's something that I am very critical of. You know, it's just to me, it's just it's so cheap. You know, it is any anybody can can write that, anybody can stage that, anybody can perform that. You know, and I, I mean, I, on the one hand, I don't want to make it sound like I'm going too hard on anybody here because I kind of have to believe that. Anybody who makes a movie like this, they have got to go into with with what I assume are the best of intentions. But at the end of the day, schlock is schlock, and that kind of stuff is schlock. Okay, I'm sorry, but that's that's just the way that I look at it. But having said all of that, like I say, behind the mask, it does cleverly avoid all of that. And this actually leads into something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, not long after this movie was released on uh, DVD, there was a lot of interest, like a lot. As you kind of hinted at a minute ago, there was a lot of buzz about this movie. It definitely found its audience on home video. And that, in in turn, kind of led to buzz about potentially a sequel. So let's just kind of, I guess, we can LARP about it for at least a little while. Is a sequel to Behind the Mask something that you're in any way interested in seeing? You know, do you think maybe one is enough or... Yeah, you know, maybe let's let's see what's uh, going on with with uh, uh, Taylor and Leslie ten years down the line. You know, like how like how could you see all of this playing well, out? See, I, I I'm an easy mark for sequels usually. If I like characters, if I see a movie where I enjoy the characters, I generally want to see them again. So it's mm-hmm. easy to kind of entice me into a sequel, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to automatically say I enjoy the sequel. Uh, I think in order to make a sequel to this movie, they're gonna have they would have to come up with a new, clever premise, and I think they tried to do that with the Scream sequels, where you know they they eventually got to the point where they were making the movie of Scream, and that was part of the uh, you know part of the deconstruction was they were on the set of the movie when the Scream character came back, so I'm not sure where you would go with these characters. I may not be quite clever enough to come up with a premise. That would justify bringing them back, but if you got somebody really good writing it, I'd be all all for seeing it again. 
Well, one of the things that I kind of liked about Scream, and honestly, I mean, I've I really like the first Scream movie, but it's I, I want to avoid saying you know diminishing returns in the sequels, but that well, is sort of undeniable. Is. But one of the things that I think the sequels did really well is that it uh, they all showed Sydney reacting to everything that happened to her in the last movie, where in Scream Two, she sort of has a little bit of PTSD going on. In Scream 3, she's gone pretty much off the grid. And then in Scream 4, it does, I think, a really good job of bringing her back full circle where she's not traumatized anymore. She's not in hiding anymore. She's not the shrink, the shrinking violet anymore. She, knowing full well what's, what's waiting for her on the other side, runs into battle. And that is a really amazingly well-written character arc. If you just follow those movies just for her participation. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not I'm not saying that I would want to necessarily see a carbon copy of that for future behind the mask movies. But I do think, you know, there is maybe some kind of disco potential to the idea of revisiting these characters or maybe not even all of these characters. Maybe maybe we can just pick up with Leslie's story since really it's his name that's in that's in the title of this thing. And you could argue that, you know what, hey, didn't exactly work out for me last time. So I'm going to try maybe this time for my next target impersonating a ghost and just see how that works and kind of play into this sort of occult sort of satanic or spiritual whatever demonic um trend that's uh that's gaining a lot of uh currency in in modern day horror and you know he can play his hand at that but it's all sleight of hand you know and he's making himself out to be something he's not and so rather than being a slasher he can instead pretend to be a demonic entity or something like that and instead follow his character growth and I, I can I guess my point is I can see this playing out a bunch of different ways I do see potential in these sequels I just I don't know that you're necessarily going to be able to pull off a documentary type of thing a second time I mean it's you know what it, there are certain things that I think audiences are willing to tolerate once don't know if they're willing to tolerate it twice you know yeah, what do you I, think? I agree with you there and I think certain Hollywood producers or Hollywood money men uh, take the attitude of hey that was successful so let's just give them more of it and more often than not I think that's a mistake when we get to sequels I think you need to tread some new ground and you could kind of play it a little bit because again I I think it would uh, strain credibility (laughs) I mean I don't know how credible you want to be on this anyway but I think it would strain credibility (laughs) to to, uh, we're having a new documentary made about him but you could have him with again maybe like you say maybe he's ready to uh to deconstruct some other form of uh of of horror trope you know maybe the ghost story or the demonic possession story or whatever uh and maybe while he's going through his planning stages you know so and so recognizes him and you know finds a way to maybe be his his biographer or something and coming along for the ride i don't know you know i'm not clever enough to be a uh Hollywood writer, so I don't know how, how much my uh, ideas would be worthwhile. But, you you know, you'd, you'd have to bring it to some, some sort of new ground. Uh, because, like I said, I think the, the movies that fail more often than not in the sequels are the ones where they say, let's just do it again. You know, that's uh, like The Hangover. They got The Hangover 2. Let's just do yeah. Hangover all over again. You know, I think that's, that's where you well, fail when you start doing that. I, I agree. And one of the things that actually kind of got me to thinking about that was I remembered... I'd already listened to your Jaws episode uh, when I rewatched the mm-hmm. movie, and so I kind of already had that sort of percolating in the back of my head. But 
one of the things that uh, came out in your Jaws episode, I think you were the one that said it, perhaps. If it's clever, I'll take credit somebody for it. Ma- okay, well, there you go. <laughs> um, somebody talked about basically a little bit of production difficulty that was experienced with Jaws 2. And that basically what the director had in mind for it, I think it's Jeanette's, uh, no, no, it was uh, his predecessor on the movie. I forget his name, but whoever Jeanette Svark ended up replacing, mm-hmm. he, he basically his conception for Jaws 2 was going to be, what effect did the events of Jaws have on the town of Amity? Because you, you need to have some kind of, I guess, a, a, a narrative anchor to the movie or actually i guess you don't have to considering how much money jaws 2 earned maybe you don't but at least the original idea was that the fate of amity as a town goings on with that and what had happened to it that was going to be i guess the sort of emotional underpinning what specifically this shark attack had done to decimate this town and i thought you know what to hell with jaws 2 that's the movie i want to see right there you know i mean I realize that we have got to have a movie. It's got to have a shark, and you've got to have people, you know, running around getting eaten up by the shark and stuff. And I get that, but there's, I think, a very interesting story there that unfortunately ended up getting kind of left on the table. But it did kind of, the reason I mention it is to say that it did kind of get me into the headspace of what a sequel to this could be. And unfortunately, your options are a little bit more limited simply because the events of Behind the Mask affected a very narrow range of people, only three of which lived to tell the tale. And so you're kind of left in a situation where it's a lot harder to come up with a sequel to Behind the Mask than it would have been to come up with a sequel, even to Jaws. And I'm of the opinion that I don't think Jaws should have been sequelized. And so, I mean, I don't know. I it, I. I guess the point is I can see it either way, and that's the point. But anyway, there you go. No, I, I, I can't disagree with anything you've said there. I, I do. I see the potential. Where you, you could make a good sequel to most movies if you put together the right formula. That's a, a mighty tall order, though. Putting together that right, that right formula eludes a lot of sequel makers. So yes. to sit here and say, is it possible they can make a sequel to this that would be outstanding? Absolutely, it's possible. If they tried to make a sequel, is it likely that they would? Probably not. You know? Yeah, no, and it's just to, look, normally it's, I don't, look, just full disclosure here, okay? Normally it is not my business at all to sympathize with a bunch of coked up Hollywood executives, okay? But having said that, you know, I do kind of appreciate the narrative challenges that go with making, say, a follow-up movie, like basically the Fast and the Furious Part 2, right? The first one, it was this big success for God knows what reason. And so now you're left with a situation where you have to find a way to continue this story, even though the first movie kind of wrapped the story up. In fact, actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, a better example would be Point Break. And I remember hearing all of these rumblings and rumors and stuff all through the 90s of, you know, there's going to be a point break too, and it's going to be, it's going to be amazing, and it's going to have this stuff, and it's just every single thing I heard. It just didn't, it didn't seem. It's sometimes it's hard to evaluate an idea out of context, but out of context or not, I cannot see a movie along the lines of what was rumored for Point Break Two being in any way interesting. You know, 
And it does kind of lend credence to the idea that, you know, maybe there's something to be said for knowing when to put the dice down. Maybe we don't need a sequel for something like this. But then again, I mean, there there are sequels out there that are at least thought by some to be better than the original. I speak here of The Godfather Part 2 because I'm a much bigger fan of the first Godfather, but I typically don't say that too loud because that's those are fighting words in I've, some I've places. I've gone back so. and forth on that. I mean, I'm on the record uh, very openly stating The Godfather and Godfather Part 2 are my number one and two movies of all time. And uh, I go back and forth mm. on which one is number one and which one is number two in my mind because number one has more originality to it uh Mm -hmm. and it's got a a very well done linear narrative flow to it uh you see michael's character arc which is really what the story is and yeah it's just it's it's epic in my opinion godfather part two dude you talk about epic (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't have some of the character beats that you have in the first movie and it doesn't have that plot that's that's easy to follow in the same way but i also kind of respect the way that they compared michael as as the head of the family to Vito as the head of the family and i just think it's incredibly well done and well paced and despite the complexity of it easy to follow and i don't want to go too much further on this because eventually i would love to cover these movies on the show uh, but Agreed. i go yeah. back and forth as to which one i enjoy more so if nothing else, I would at least say you can make a viable argument that Godfather 2 is better than Godfather. That doesn't mean everybody's going to agree. It doesn't even necessarily mean on a given day that I'm going to agree. But I think you can make the viable argument. Well, and that kind of leads into one of the things that I just I like about Is It Jaws as a concept. Because at least so far, you know, it's touched upon movies that they're like hot buttered popcorn for my movie lover's soul. <laughs> and... You know, in that Jaws is one of those movies, and I and here again, I not to dwell too much on it, but I would mention the first Godfather movie and probably Casablanca and a few others. They're part of a group of movies that's they're not even my favorites anymore. I need them, and what I like about your show is that you go over all of these things with a fine tooth comb, and I think the Dirty Harry episode is actually a really good example of what I'm talking about, where the I guess the complexities of what Dirty Harry as a movie and then also Harry Callahan as a character, what they are, what they meant at that specifically at the time that that movie came out, the historical antecedents leading up to uh, the first Dirty Harry movie and all of these other things. Listening to somebody wax fanboy about those types of uh, movies and not even those types of movies, specifically those movies, it it's it sings to my soul and so anyway and, and uh that's basically a way of working working in guys you need to listen to definitely those two episodes jaws and dirty harry because those are great episodes of this show guys well, thank you again for that one thing we haven't cu- covered on this and i, I don't want to go too much longer because we're you know kind of up against time wise i like to keep it in the hour range but uh we haven't yeah, talked right about on. uh leslie vernon's performance nathaniel basil I'm not really familiar with him outside of this movie, and I don't know if you are. Um, no, I mean, I did a quick uh, uh, glance at his Wikipedia page, and oddly enough, it doesn't even give all that lengthy a uh, filmography for him. It basically said that what really stands out is that he was in an episode of Cold Case. And I get the idea that he's one of those actors for whom his big break has, I don't know why, but it's just 
eluded him. And it's a, it's a real shame, too, because his performance here, you know, when you think, of, look, I don't have the same eye for acting that a lot of other people do, and I'll be the first to admit that, but there's a line that you that you have to walk if you're going to play a character like Leslie where you can't be so serious as to come off like a complete and total maniac, but you can't really be over-the-top goofy either. He's somehow able to play a psychotic murderer as just some guy in the bar that you might you might share beers with. I don't know. It's like every step of the way, Leslie is likable, never sympathetic, but he is in a weird kind of way likable. Yeah. Right up until the moment that the worm has to turn and he really does become the killer now and all of the jokes, all of the easygoing uh, smiles and laughter and all that that stuff is gone and what we have in its place is a is an animal this man's a killer and he at all times he makes it seem like this is the same guy every step of the way and it's i i mean i'm not going to go so far as to say this is an academy award worthy uh, performance but he really did did well for himself i think well, yeah, what are your I, thoughts i agree i think he made some really good choices in how he presented the character and i think he kind of hit on that he didn't play him deadly serious he didn't play him over the top silly what he chose to do was to play him as very enthusiastic and apparently psychotic to the extent that he didn't appreciate the lives of others like the fact that he was going to be killing people was just lost on him uh, and the enthusiasm that he approaches his craft if you can call it that with is somewhat engaging and it leaves you with this feeling afterwards like my god how could i be entertained by that and yet you know again i i give i credit his performance to it and i think it hits its peak when he's on the screen with scott wilson because i thought he played his part so well and when the two of them interact i thought there was a real chemistry there that actually leads into i can't believe i forgot to mention this i'm sorry i'm not trying to drag this no, out no, no, i'm really worry. not so but um there's a moment when we've we're still in documentary mode and Leslie, he's made, at this point, the switch. And he is now the killer. The documentary team and Leslie are hiding in the closet. Leslie puts on the mask, charges out of the closet. He kills. And the documentary team, they have to listen to this. That is actually one of the moments that actually kind of got ruined for me. Or rather, let me rephrase that. That's one of the moments that sort of ruined the movie for me, at least for a moment. And that the documentary team, they are now accessories to murder, you know? Now, yeah, they grew a conscience. They decided to abandon the documentary. They decided to go in there and save the the remaining teenagers as they tried as best they could. It's like that doesn't... The two don't cancel each other out. End of the day, they knew what he was going to do. They documented it every step of the way. And then when he finally did it, they did nothing. Absolutely nothing to stop. And I don't want to make this too real world here because this is supposed to be a movie. It is supposed to be fiction and very satirical fiction at that. But that's still, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a red line for me in that, you know, there is such a thing as right and there is such a thing as wrong. And in that moment, I don't really know. I mean, because I'm not an attorney, I don't really know what the law would say about this. But at least from a moral standpoint, it's kind of hard to think of them as anything else apart from an, uh, apart from accessories to murder. You know, I, oh, yeah, what do you I think about that? Agree with you and. If you are aware of a crime of that nature that's going to occur and you can do something to stop it without any putting yourself into the line of danger, you have an absolute obligation to do so. And by not 
by basically kind of helping him along through all of this, I believe that that you're correct, and they actually absolutely become accessories to the murder. And, and that's one. Of, or maybe sorry, even that's. Oh, I was just going to throw out possibly even that's conspiracy to commit murder. Yeah, anyway, well, go to ahead. To some extent, because they're almost abetting him in in his plan. Uh, and and I think yeah, it's it's one of the things that while he has this childlike innocence to him and clearly cannot appreciate the gravity of what he's doing. So you can almost forgive him in a weird way. The mm-hmm. documentary crew, for them to just stand by and let all this occur, when clearly they have the ability to see that this is not right, uh, they almost become more guilty than he is. And, and that's a, it's a yeah. strange thing when you think, put it in that perspective. But I, 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 don't, th- yeah. I don't know that we're supposed to look at it that deeply. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't either. I just wanted to throw that out there that I couldn't just yeah. let it slide. So I said I, I said my piece, and so anyway, but, there uh, you just, have it. Just one of the interesting things, I looked up his IMDb page, and mm-hmm. it seems like he has a lot more work in edit, editing and post-production and that type of thing than he does actually in front of the camera. Hmm, okay. With things like storage Didn't wars. Didn't see that coming. I'm looking at this, uh, what is this, some show, Married to Medicine. Hmm. never heard of either. it. America's Lost Treasures. I mean, these these sound like uh, History Channel shows. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's weird. I, I don't know. It, it's, I don't, you know, it's it, it's kind of strange that sometimes somebody who's legitimately talented, it's for whatever reason, they just, they don't really get that breakout part. I mean, apart from playing Lana Lang and then also later playing Martha Kent, what of any significant stature has Annette O'Toole ever really done? And yet, I... I, for one, certainly don't question her talent, but it's like somehow, I don't know, things just never broke her way. It's just, it's weird. It, 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 it's weird. It happens, but I don't know. That's yeah, strange. I agree. And you can find, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find a lot of very, very talented uh, actors and actresses who just never got the big break. And then you could find some others who yeah. got the big break and made money and you scratch your head saying, you know, why are people paying to see this guy? Yeah. You know, I kind of think of... Um, <laughs> I, look, I disavow it as I say it, right? But the minute you said that, the first person that came to mind was Will Ferrell. Okay. <laughs> he's he's been so. in a couple of things that I've enjoyed, but I I I happen to really like the movie Elf. But uh, I've also seen him in things where I scratch my head and wonder why would anybody pay money to see this? So okay, well, I can Fair enough. go with you on that. So we've we've both kind of given our Jaws rankings. Uh, we're both kind of. In that gray area between Jaws 2 and Jaws 3, and for the, for what it's worth, I always like to give the definition of the Jaws scale because it doesn't necessarily correspond to the movies themselves. But uh, a, a movie Go that's right rated out. as Jaws would be an all-time classic. Jaws 2 would be a very, very solid movie worthy of multiple viewings. Uh, not quite classic, but the flaws in it aren't enough to bring it down. Jaws 3, worth seeing, but nothing special. And Jaws 4, a piece of crap. This is... No question about it. Not a piece of crap. This is this is a very very no. watchable movie. The question is, does it land in the Jaws three or the Jaws two level? And as as I said, we're both kind of like right in that middle ground between them. And I think your you know if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, uh, your viewing pleasure might be dependent on how much you like movies that deconstruct other movies and how much you like horror movies. I think that that might be the deciding factor in it. Agreed. Anyway, uh, Francis, I want to thank you so much for coming on with me. This has been a pleasure. You know, I, I, I came to the realization as we were waiting to do this that, you know, we've spoken numerous times. We did a couple of the uh, 
you know, the group rate, uh, reviews of movies. And there's been a couple of conversations that we've had, uh, you know, in groups that were never recorded. Uh, just, you know, we all happened to be on Skype at one time. But this is our first time uh, with a one-on-one conversation. And it's been a pleasure. Well, again, thank you very much for having me. And just kind of as a defense uh, for that, uh, just what I'd like to say is the on, literally the only reason that I've never invited you on to, uh, to be on my show is just because especially for the past couple of months, my schedule has just been so just messed up. And I didn't want to basically I didn't want to make make you promises that I might not be able to keep. That is literally the only reason it never happened. So otherwise, I've always been I've always been I've always just liked your style just as a podcaster. There's really no one else out there who does it the way that you do. I I appreciate that air of, uh, I guess, of, of warmth and positivity that you always bring to everything that you do. And, you know, it would be nice to think that, you know, that was more common. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like everybody else in podcasting. They're all a bunch of jerks. I don't I don't mean it like that. I just there's something that's always just very warm and inviting about specifically your presence. And I've always appreciated that. And that's something that I want to have on my show at some point. We need to figure out a way to make that happen. Oh, that's for sure. Thanks so much for the kind words. I really appreciate that. Now you've you've basically made it so I'm never going to get out of this room because my head's too big. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do appreciate that very much. And uh, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot to get an invitation onto your show. So, uh, you know, when, if, if and when the, the topic comes up that you feel like I, fit, I would fit, I will gladly come on. And if that never happens, I understand. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make something happen. Uh, but in the sure meanwhile, we, we've already forward. discussed at least one other movie that we'll be doing together uh, sometime down Correct. the road. Hopefully not too, too long from now. But in the meanwhile, anybody who's listening to this who doesn't already listen to your show or isn't already familiar with it, you, why don't you tell them about your show? Oh, yeah, I guess yeah, maybe we should. Okay. Uh, basically, I do a show that's called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and you can find it at twotruefreaks.com. And the shtick of it's actually pretty simple. I have six episodes wherein I talk about pretty much anything I want. It can be... Uh, uh, it, it can be about comics, it can be about movies, it can be about TV shows. Lately, I've even thrown in a little bit of music. I've talked about uh, an REM album. There are more of those still to come. The seventh episodes, I am trying to get back onto some kind of a predictable schedule with Chris Honeywell so that he and I can finish up our series about the uh, DC Paradox Press line of big books, after which the seventh episodes are going to be I guess sort of like a variety hour, basically topics or ideas or just what have you that Chris and I find interesting. Uh, we're going to be talking about those and we've got some, I think some really good ideas in the pipeline. So I, I really look forward to getting those out. And then the eighth episodes are always, always, always all about Smallville, the TV show Smallville and my fandom for that, because it does need to be said, I am a huge Smallville fan. And so after that, we start the whole thing all over again with another six episodes about whatever I want, a seventh episode, an eighth episode, wash, rinse, repeat. So in, again, you can find that at twotruefreaks.com, just like you can uh, Is It Jaws. I am a regular listener, and I recommend the show very highly. Uh, as, as I said earlier <laughs> well, in the show, you. whether or not you agree with the opinions that are presented, and it's, there's a lot of opinionated topics it's not just hey here's some facts you know let's let's delve into it let's give our opinions on it or you you know not let's you do uh and whether you agree with them or not it's never i've never heard an opinion that i've disagreed with where i felt like you didn't give a good reason for your opinion 
So right. to me, that's right. that's, that's, that's what the I tried to the whole thing, though. It's not this sucks because I didn't like it. It's this sucks, and I'll tell you why. And here's A, B, C, D, whatever, you know. And and I appreciate that. I, I always enjoy listening to something like that more. Uh, and I particularly gotten a kick out of the big book reports and i'm very happy to hear that you're going to still be doing something with chris because i think that the chemistry is there between the two of you so i'm, I'm <laughs> happy that you guys are going to still be doing episodes together now that the big books are all uh used up yeah well we've got one more and then that's it so it'll be fun and it'll be fine don't worry about it we've got it cool. under control Glad to hear it and thank you by the way for the kind words i really do appreciate it all true uh <laughs> anybody listening anybody has any opinions if you've seen this movie, if you're interested in seeing this movie, if you go out and watch this movie because we talked about it, I'd be interested in hearing what your opinions are. I have an email address, jawspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please feel free to write in. Let us know. Let, let us know what you think. Uh, I would love to get a couple of iTunes reviews in there, get get people out there to hear the show. Uh, in the meanwhile, you know, we'll be back in two weeks with another movie. And thank you for listening. Mm, so Eugene Leslie tells us you're retired. All right, talk about this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I told her that you could give her a history of what it was like in the old days. Oh, shoot. It was a whole different world back when I was in the game. How so? Well, I had a good portion of my success in the late 60s, 70s. Back then, it was about quantity of work. How many jobs can you fit in a year? How many places can you hit? You know... We didn't have all this preparation these guys use today. But the good ones do, anyway. That's true. You know, there's always been hacks out there. One-hit wonders. It's a bloody mess of some sorority somewhere. Get killed. Or arrested. You never put it together again. Makes it bad for all of us. It just cheapens it. That's great, honey. Why don't you uh, go start the grill? I will. Okay.